And HLA is one of those rare parts where if you make the family tree of HLA copies, it doesn't go back a million years or 1.2 or 2 million. It goes back 40 million years. Wow. So if you think of the tree, like a, typically it'd be like a million year tall Christmas tree. This is a 40 million year tall giant redwood. Yeah, it's huge. Okay? It goes way back in time for HLA. That's a mystery in itself. Why does it go back so deep in yeah. time where other, other parts of our chromosomes only go back a million years? Boom, what's up everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakian. We are on site in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We are now gonna be talking about magical genes. We have Dr. Nathaniel Pearson joining us on the show. Hello. Hello, sir. Thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely, pleasure. Very grateful for Alex K. Chen for introducing us. We're gonna have an epic, yes? Yeah, I was just gonna say, yeah. like some people are crucial hubs, right? In connecting people in the world. And <laughs> it's right. always a good thing. That's right, yeah. AKC is such a crucial hub. We love you very much. Nathan is the founder of Root, which reads your most vital DNA for free, helping you roam your family roots, save patients via better matches, and spark science that you love. And you can check out Nathan's links below, his rootdeep.com link below, uh, as well as his Twitter profile and his LinkedIn profile links below. So, Magical Genes, really excited to talk about this. Nathan, let's start things off with your journey. Let's start things off with your story. You know, you have this profound story even right on your website about you when you were six. Teach us about this. Yeah, and so I, I was saying, you know, we're sitting on this couch, it feels Freudian, and I, and I will tell you about, about my mom. Um, and my mom was one of the key uh, sort of strands that, that wove together to become what Root is and, and the idea that burned in me to, to, to make happen. Um, and it's sort of like your shirt. So I love your shirt. This gets at the way that DNA really uh, sort of traces into the past and our roots. So my story, what brought us here to this couch today, is in part that as a young kid, um, as a young sort of proto-scientist in the world out exploring and then, you know, getting dirty in streams and bringing home frogs and things like that, one really precious person in my life encouraging that, bringing out the young scientist in me, was my mom. And uh, in the short time that I got to spend with her, uh, she taught me a lot about the world and really cultivated that spark um, of curiosity uh, that, that would encourage somebody to become a scientist. Sadly, she died when she was very young. So she was 34 uh, when she got a leukemia. So basically, uh, cells within her, as in any cancer, they, they mutinied. They had genetic changes that happened to them and that made them differ from the other cells in her body. They started to grow out of control and they overtook her body and they killed her. And she died in an early era of how we were treating blood cancers when we were just starting to think about how we might actually use transplant somebody else's cells to come to the rescue and stop that mutiny. Today we're trying to perfect that in the world and so the mission of bone marrow transplant was planted as a seed in my, in my understanding of the world very early on by, by her loss, by the, the, the flame that was snuffed out that, that was her. Um, that memory lives on in me, and I don't, I, every day I think of her, like many of us who have lost people think of that person every day. She still remains a, a big influence on me, but um, I think it was only as an adult that I realized later how that experience would entwine with my broader understanding of genetics 
to spark a new idea, an aha moment about how we could help there. And the aha moment is that the same genes that we screen to see if somebody would be a match for a transplant, to see if, if you could be the person who helps save that person who needs a transplant, be it a blo you know, bone marrow or blood or a solid organ, same genes that we screen for uh, many kinds of, of transplant match are called HLA, five genes on our sixth chromosome, and those genes are in many ways the most magical and mysterious genes in our constellation of 20,000 genes. They are the ones that help our bodies sense what's going on within. They, I think of them as the hands of our cells. So they make these five proteins, so there's two copies, one from mom and one from dad, and they make these hands that each of our cells in our body use to sense what other little protein fragments are here in this body. And those could be proteins from a, a virus or a bacterium, so they're, they're classically used to respond to, to bugs, to germs that, that might infect us and decide, help the body decide what to do. But they also might be proteins from a tumor. They might be proteins from a fetus that's growing within us, and we need to know that we're pregnant and, and in order to actually do you know, good things to help that fetus grow. They may be from other proteins that our cells are making. They are, they are the hands that help our cells sense what's going on within when they're blind otherwise. And they're exquisitely diverse. So just like human hands have fingerprints that are, each, that are unique, these hand genes, these five genes, are, they come in so many varieties, stunning diversity that we've kept around among our ancestors, that it's really hard to find somebody who has exactly the same looking hands as you. Mm -hmm. And yet that becomes crucial for transplant. So mm -hmm. this is where it becomes magic to me. And, I th and we talked a little bit, um, you know, just, just getting to know each other, that transplant is a form of real magic. It's like, it's, as we were saying, it's some Harry Potter shit. Mm -hmm. So what, you know, that, that my bone marrow might save you is some kind of magical stuff. And, and I might be the only person who could save you. So no one else could step up and save you. It's almost like you, that scene in Star Wars, it's like, help me Obi-Wan, you're our only hope. You may be the Obi-Wan for somebody out there in the world, and you may be the only person on the planet who could save that person. I couldn't, uh, whoever you are, viewer, you couldn't, only you could. And likewise, you as the viewer might be the Obi-Wan, the only person on the planet who could save somebody in need. And that is something that is just yeah, um, it, it's, it's almost mind-boggling that, that it's, it's at once medieval and sci-fi. It's medieval in the sense that we still have to resort to that to save a, a cancer patient, to you know, a marrow transplant, but it's sci-fi in that it actually works sometimes. So thinking about my own experience with my mom and, um, and how many, many families are grieving from the loss of people like her, who are big influences for kids and, and really important parts of, of our lives, I thought, how can we help more families find a good, well-matched, willing donor for every patient who needs one? Well, one way we could do that is by bringing those good donors, those volunteers, insight from that good deed about themselves. They're healthy volunteers. They've stood up to the world and said, if I'm needed to give bone marrow, to give platelets, to give, um, you know, any, as a transplant donor, call me if I'm needed in the one. And that, that good de deed should be honored 
and they deserve to get their data back, to learn what it means for them, to learn how to weave it into their lives. That's what we found a route to do. Mm -hmm. And your analogy with the hands was really powerful. And I'm excited to unpack that in more detail. I want to take us to the steps that you took because you did Stanford, then you did University of Chicago, Evolutionary Genetics PhD. Take us through those steps and then into your the first industry work okay. pre-route. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so, um, it, you know, I, so as a kid, you know, when I was splashing around in, in streams and stuff like that, my mom was encouraging me, I was always asking why questions. I, I realized that looking back, like we ask different questions in the world. I think people who, engineers, for example, I think often ask maybe how questions, very mechanistic. For me, it was why. Why does, not just the why is the sky blue, but, but you know, why this, why that? And thinking about the history of things, it's um, the, the causal chain that leads from what was in the past to the present, how, how, how whys get us there. That is a, it, talking to peers in evolutionary biology and evolutionary genetics, it's a very common kind of way of thinking in, in evolutionary biology. You know, why, why are organisms, why are the critters that we love, people, birds, plants, the life form that, that, you know, the life forms that, that make the planet such a wonderful place to live, why are, they way they, why are they the way they are? Why are they so diverse? Why are they, in many cases, suited well to living in one way or one place, not another, et cetera? Mm -hmm. The questions that Darwin grappled with and mm -hmm. really foundationally helped us understand. Well, many of us have followed in those footsteps. And uh, at Stanford, you know, thinking about those why questions, I was interested in languages too, how they change, and there are parallels there um, with family trees and the, and the trees of languages in their past. So um, that question of, of how do things diversify and why, that was sort of running through my thinking, and I didn't really know where to put that thinking as an undergrad all, all the time. Like I, I worked, you know, in, with uh, some really, was lucky to work with some great peers and, and, and uh, and gurus on both of those fronts in biology and, and linguistics. Joe Greenberg on the languages side and uh, Luca Cavalli-Sforza on biology, on genetics. But eventually it crystallized and I, and I started thinking mm -hmm. about what Luca had really pioneered, which was understanding human diversity. Mm -hmm. How did we get so splendidly diverse on the planet mm -hmm. in the, the, the way we look, the ways that we live our lives? What history does that reflect? And how can we look at our DNA and peer a little bit further back into that darkness from it? How does the DNA lead from the, the leaves on, on the tree today? Those are us. Mm -hmm. Back in time towards the roots. Yes, 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 yes. That are our ancestors. This is and, really good, yeah. Oh, and, my, and, and once you, you know, and that we're was... we're each a fruit on the... We are each a, a leaf or a fruit, and, yeah, and we're yeah. splendidly diverse in that, and everybody's different. And we, and you wanted to go back at the the biological and you know archaeological lineage of how we actually got to where we're and at. they entwine yeah. so the the a one kind of evidence from DNA um, supplements what we can learn from from digging through old mm -hmm. uh, you know trash heaps um, yeah. that, that old cultures had or, or 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 now recovering the DNA from from soil and trying to figure out what organisms lived there and what yeah. the people were, were eating at the time or things like that um, so the, that question came to captivate me human right. diversity and I was really lucky at 25 to get to go on a long trip uh, this is just before starting grad school I went on a long trip across southwest and central Asia so we basically drove 
from London to the Chinese border and back wow. over five months. This was led by uh, a guy named Spencer Wells, who many of you may know. He's a, a, a you know, prominent population geneticist. Wow. And Spencer um, That's how you saw actually fit get to let me ride a long shotgun and, and, uh, and help sort of you know, speak languages to people along the way and, and uh, process blood samples and things like that and start to document human genetic diversity in a part of the world that had, had been really not yet well studied yet. And there remain other parts of the world, especially outside of Europe that have just not been documented well. Um, we've been very Eurocentric in our biases, and, and this was an early effort to start to branch out beyond that a little bit. Um, and we, we learned a little bit scientifically from that trip, from collecting blood from uh, roughly 1,000 people across that swath of the planet. I learned a hell of a lot for life. I mean, it was a, a mind-warping experience to, to suddenly be exposed to the cultural diversity that you can get to with a Jeep driving from London to China and the, the realization that this ocean of land has been open to people moving across it for many, uh, not just millennia, but dozens of millennia. Like the, the human rootedness of, of uh, us in different parts of the planet started to dawn on me. And it, it, it just was a real like, mind-opening experience to go on as a, as a lucky young scientist. Then coming back... That's how you... That's real population genetics. It's out there in the world. And you, and you going and doing it hands-on for five months and and you said you sampled blood even yeah. and also were able to get behind the eyes of so many different humans and culture. And, and talk with them and right and about their experiences in their lives and, and you know uh, admittedly often with halting you know uh, a, a lingua franca that we could speak maybe I spoke a little bit of Russian or a little bit of Persian um, and they spoke maybe a little bit of English or, or Uyghur, and you and you make do, and you but you explain to each other. You know, they would take a lute down from the wall and play it, and and yeah. um, and yeah. there are these human interactions that that transcend the language barriers. Yes. Um, and that are just as important as anything you're going to learn later in the lab from that person's DNA, and it also teaches you what you can't yet learn what you can't yet explain to them. It teaches you about some of the ethical challenges that we face in, in sort of you know, swooping into a village and th thank you very much sampling DNA from people and then how do you get back the insights to those people? How do you make sure that they understand well, A, why you're interested in their DNA, that it's about human history in this case and not about helping them solve a family health issue and not about them maybe worrying about you know contamination in the soil you know from some from like making sure they, they understand you're not there because there's been an industrial accident or something like that ethics looms large and a lot of those questions are really challenging and and they're suddenly in your face in the field so yes field biology um it's a great liberal education in itself yes coming back from that um i was lucky to go to grad school in a place university of chicago where suddenly you're in this very crystalline um, time in, in our field. So evolutionary genetics in the 90s and, and the early 2000s was a very mathematically um, rigorizing field. Suddenly we, we didn't have DNA sequencers that could read a lot of DNA yet. We, each, each letter we read was pr still pretty expensive. So we had to learn as much as we could from the few that we could read. And that meant thinking really carefully about how to understand the mathematics of what you learn. Yeah. So that was a good grounding in, in theoretical population genetics, which teaches you a lot about all the things you can guess about the past from just looking at the way DNA varies today. And that's when the, f 
that's when the first inkling hit me of, of how much we can learn from this part of our genomes that we focus on in root, which is called uh, HLA. And so these, these HLA genes, th think of a family tree. And we've all got family trees um, for our own families where, you know, you go back in time and you, and you branch to mom and dad and then their mom, mom and mom's mom and mom's dad and, and all the ancestors going back and eventually they entangle because some of them had the same ancestor. So it's a complex web. You want to learn about that. Just like we have family trees, the copies of our chromosomes also have family trees. And so you could take your two copies of, you know, the sixth chromosome or the first chromosome and my two and your two and everybody on the planet's copies and you could make a family tree and of how those copies go back to their own ancestors one generation back, two generations back, and then back into the sort of mist of deep time. Uh, and we've unfortunately have n not been able to do a good job at documenting the six million years of ancestral evolution. Uh, you're talking about since we since our ancestors diverged from other great apes yeah, ancestors. Yeah. So we we've started to patch it together, and we're starting to get some amazing insights on on the sort of uh, it's a lot of it is soap opera insights about who who stooped who back in time. You know, um, Denisovans living in, in, in Sundaland and, and uh, you know, the, uh, in Southeast Asia where there are islands now who, who you know, may have intermingled with, with so-called modern humans who were suddenly traipsing through and they got it on. And, and the story is the same everywhere. When people, people get a chance, they get it on. <laughs> and, and we are the, the um, wonderfully varied and wonderfully swirled together um, you know, it's the, the Dairy Queen swirls of that today, the, the, the 31 flavors of, and many more of, of humanity are, are the result of all that mixing. So we can start to figure it out looking at our DNA now. And we have a tendency to mix. Oh, to we do. To we, swirl. You noticed, and, and, we, and all of us have probably noticed that, so it's, it's, it's a good thing. Yeah. So, so the cool thing with HLA though, so if you make this family tree of copies of a human chromosome, typically they go back to one copy that, um, the, the last ancestor of all of those copies that are in us today, all, all 14 billion or so copies of chromosome one at a given position would go back to one ancestral copy. That ancestral copy was in somebody about typically a million years back. So all of them go back to one copy and, and that was in an ancestor of ours about a million years ago. It's a different ancestor as you move along the chromosome for a complex little process called recombination where chromosomes get, they get uh, sort of cut and pasted back together in a quilt over time. So this, this letter could be one ancestor a million years ago who lived in, uh, in Southeast Africa. Another, another, the letter over might go back to a different ancestor who lived 1.2 million years ago, a uh, thousand kilometers away. They never knew each other, different ancestors, but more or less same part of the world southern or eastern Africa, and more or less a million years ago, okay? For some parts of our genome, the picture looks totally different. And HLA is one of those rare parts where if you make the family tree of HLA copies, it doesn't go back a million years or 1.2 or 2 million. It goes back 40 million years. Wow. So if you think of the tree, like a, typically it'd be like a million year tall Christmas tree. This is a 40 million year tall giant redwood. Yeah, it's 
huge. Okay. Goes way back in time for HLA. That's a mystery in itself. Why does it go back so deep in yeah. time where other, other parts of our chromosomes only go back a million years? And so HLA is found in the sixth. The sixth chromosome. chromosome. So the, our chromosomes have long and short arms. They've got a long arm and they've got a short arm like this. Yeah. And HLA is on the short arm of the sixth chromosome. And uh, it's about a, a stretch of DNA that's about four million letters yeah. out of that much longer chromosome. Wow, and it's all there together. Uh, there there's a bunch of little genes there's, in there. Yeah, so okay. there's, there's five so-called classical genes in there. And th okay. those are the ones that make the five fingers that, our, fingers, that yeah. our, hand, our cells use to sort of sense the, the proteins. And that, that part was so profound, too. So, these, so, so, so HLA genes give cells the ability to sense what's going on in the body and make the yeah. adjustments that are needed. Yeah. And Is so this everything from, like, digestion, like digestive Absolutely. So, and we often caricature them. We think of them as the epicenter of the immune system. So we think that, I mean, so, you know, they help respond to bacteria, viruses, protozoa, other germs that we eat or that, you know, we get from somebody sneezing or, or however, or from sex. Um, and, and they help our bodies respond to those and know that uh, there's an alarm, set off the alarm, call the immune system, call the T cells in. Yeah. And they come and they, they, they then it's, it's almost like the classic Victorian murder mystery. What they're doing is these hands are taking a little scrap of protein from that germ, like the, the bloodhound with the handkerchief from the killer. Yeah. And they're saying, here, immune system, smell, smell this, here, bloodhound, smell this. What does this little protein smell like? Now go get them. Go get them. Yeah. Anything that, any cell that has this little fragment of a protein, yeah. Yeah. kill the cell. That's the classic way we think about HLA, is like prompting the immune system to rally wow. and kill off an invader. It's much more nuanced than that. And you yeah, asked about totally. digestion. So, totally. so Will you teach us what HLA stands for? Yeah, sure. So it's human leukocyte antigen. So, so human, like people like us, leukocyte is white, white blood cells, antigen. So, the, so antibodies are those, um, they're these proteins that swarm in on, on, on like a germ and help the immune system say, hey, over here, we got, you know, we're, we're holding it down for you. Come, come and come, you know, take care of this one. Um, so antigens are what prompt those antibodies to come and swarm. They, they're what fit. So human leukocyte antigen, um, and, and so it, it's sort of the helping make the, um, the helping hold out the little fragment of protein so that the immune system can respond to it. Um, in broader uh, other mammals, it's called the major histocompatibility complex, MHC. Same genes, same just different fancy jargon, same genes. Interesting. Okay. So those genes, um, they're really important to how... Can I make a, high, uh, a potential... Uh, rookie fresh perspective on the HLAs is it, is it could be that the reason why it is a redwood compared to just a Christmas tree is because of its use case in the body. It's because such it's a so profound valued. value in the body. So it, you're, you have a hunch, a great hunch, and that hunch is very well intuited. We think, and it's not proven, but we think that one reason at least why HLA remains so diverse be, it, we, it basically, we've kept around diversity in our population of ancestors since 40 million years ago. We think that just for your, as your question guesses, that's because it's been useful to keep that diversity around. And the simple way of thinking about that, why would it be useful to have diversity in an immune response system? So to make sure that our kids can respond to a 
diverse array of potential threats, I mean, you know, germs. So you want, you want to have a healthy brood of kids. You want to make sure that they can respond to this virus, that bacterium, that protozoan. And so you, it, we think that our ancestors have maybe chosen mates to have HLA that differs from their own, to have kids that are more diverse with an HLA than they would be at random. Yeah. Okay? So it's almost the opposite. Like, you know, in transplant, we're trying to find that rare match for somebody who needs, we need to find that, that OB1 who happens to match exactly your HLA with, with mate choice. We think it's almost the opposite, we think. Yeah. People may have been trying to find somebody who, who smelled a little different, yeah. and they didn't know why. It's yeah. not like there's, there's nobody reading HLA out, but it just felt sexier. There was more of that spark there, and we yeah. think that that might have to do with HLA. So how does that happen? We don't know yet. We don't even know if it happens. It's yeah. something I, I'm curious about. Yeah. But you could, one way it could happen, we know about microbiomes now. Yeah. So microbiomes are the, you know, the, the mix of germs that lives in, say, our gut or in our mouth. Well, there's an, there, our, micro, our microbiomes include skin microbiomes. Mm -hmm. So what grows you know, our armpits or on our skin mm -hmm. generally? And the different mix of germs on there is gonna smell different. Mm -hmm. So it could be that folks are, you know, you're used to your own smell from that mix of microbes that are living on your skin. And that's in part because of which, which germs your HLA prompts your body to rally against and which ones it kind of welcomes. It's a distinctive mix to you. And w in finding somebody who smells sexy to you, it may be you're just looking for somebody who smells a little bit different yeah, that yeah. way. And yeah. that's, one, that's one idea of it's how it could profoundly happen. profoundly fascinating. And it's cool how HLA both gives you the, the rare match as well as the desire for swirl. Yeah, that's, that's, and it's swirled up, and, and there's a lot of complexity. And so um, it, it's not, I've, I've caricatured it here, like in a just so story way, in a really yeah, simple yeah, fable. Yeah. And reality's a lot messier, and we still have a lot totally, to learn. Totally. But let, let me get back to your question about, about digestion, because that's a great one. Okay. Right, so, every, so HLA, epicenter of, of our immune system, along with some other genes that, that help um, as well, like um, interleukins and, and these kinds of genes. Um, but also crucial in just about every big autoimmune disease, type 1 diabetes, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, all the biggies there, celiac disease. So how some people can't eat wheat without getting sick. And I'm talking about real celiac, not where people are just sort of avoiding gluten because it's trendy. Not to caricature that, but, um, but where people, their hair falls out, you know, they get severe symptoms if they have wheat. That is prompted mainly through HLA. So if I know that you have true celiac disease, I know that you very likely, like 95% chance, have one of two different HLA types that predispose to that, that disease. Likewise, everything we know about peanut allergy, so where the body's again responding to a little protein fragment of what we eat, traces first to HLA and a couple other genes. Much of our body's sort of like blind figuring out of what, what's here has to do with that HLA sensing the protein, be it a peanut protein, a wheat protein, a viral protein, or in the cases, a, the good stuff. Again, when, when we're pregnant, when we need to make sure that that newly conceived fetus implants well, in the, you know, in, in, and, and, and gets a good placenta to supply it with nutrients over the course of pregnancy. 
that process is mediated in part through HLA recognizing, aha, there's some, somebody different in the cell, in, in the blood here. I'm, I'm, I'm sensing proteins that don't look like they're from us body. It looks like from another body. And so HLA figures crucially in pregnancy health. So a lot of what we want to do with, with ROOT is start with helping people who volunteer as a transplant um, volunteer and say, I, I'm available if I'm ever needed. Very few people will ever get the call to give marrow. So maybe one in 400 will ever get to give marrow. The other 399 all want to do something good in the world mm -hmm. with their cells, their data. They want to help the health of others and humanity. There is so much science that is mediated centrally through HLA first, understanding peanut allergy, mm -hmm. understanding the, who gets type 1 diabetes or who doesn't understanding who gets lupus, understanding who gets pregnancy complications, how people respond to immune therapies wow. and other drugs. All of that science goes right through HLA. People deserve to get their data back, their HLA data, yeah. for free, yeah. to take charge of it and own it, so that they know it's th that they decide how it's used in the world, mm -hmm. not somebody else. And ideally, they can get some stake in how it's used. Totally. So if, there, if, if there's a discovery made, I would like to see rooters get credited for that discovery, yeah. intellectually and ideally. Also, when there's when there's lucre, when there's um, profit made on that discovery, I'd like to see people see part of that profit. They've contributed to it, and they deserve that. So we'd like to to do this in a, like a public benefit corporation kind of way. Um, that we can make happen for those 399 people who never get to get bone marrow, but would still love to help out with with science. There's so much uh, starts with HLA, and I say that. Um, it's funny. I think really broadly about our genomes. Yeah. I think about all six, plus, you know, almost seven billion letters in your genome and mine, and how all of those can matter. But I would go to science con conference after conference, year after year, and HLA always photobombs the picture. Mm. When there's a big study of what, where in our genomes varies with who gets sick and who doesn't with this particular disease. And again, it could be lupus, it could be narcolepsy, it could be uh, MS, multiple sclerosis, it could be um, you know, any number, it could be ankylosing spondylitis or who, how, who people, how do people get uh, alopecia when their hair falls out, all kinds of different health questions. HLA would always be there. There'd be a huge peak on chromosome 6P on the short arm and the, the, the researcher will always say, well, of course we saw an a strong association with HLA, but let's look at the next slide where we can see a peak, a different peak that we can understand better. Because that diversity of HLA, um, I wonk out on it because it's so deep, it goes so far back in time, but it really scares off a lot of other res research. <laughs> it's and it's time to dig in and time to say, hey, with, with crowd data, with, with your help, with all of our help, pooling our data, we can actually advance science with HLA. Your story is what I think many people can relate to because we usually find our greatest treasures on the other side of our greatest traumas and our side of our greatest fears. And you experienced um, what you did with your mother potentially so that you could be the, this biology and uh, and anthropology uh, pioneer and that 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 HLA gene pioneer. This this may be 
uh, and it's a huge potentially um, moment of aha for other young people that are like, you know, why are these walls up? Well, maybe the walls are up to challenge you to get through the walls so that you can find your greatest treasures on the other side of the walls. And that's where we find the most meaning in our life. But then you take us all the way to, you know, you've been doing Root now for three years. And um, so when someone signs up for Root, they're, they're usually getting is saliva. Is that the? Yeah. yeah. So, so, so HLA typing is typically done today through spit. Yeah. And so you, you give a spit kit um, either at a, at a, a marrow drive or we can, uh, we're going to have ways to arrange to get a kit to you. And then um, that DNA gets typed and we want to bring people the, back their HLA type. And I should mention also, we, we will likely branch out soon to blood donation as well because we can do something very, help, very similar and helpful there. And when you look at, at blood donation, there are some other loci, the other loci uh, jargon, sorry, other, other genes in our genome that really matter for, for blood donation as well, for blood match. And we know, of course, you know ABO, so the ABO blood group. A similarly mysterious one where the diversity goes way back in time, way, and by the way, 40 million years back, way predates the divergence of people and chimpanzee ancestors, mm -hmm. right, of our, so we're talking about diversity that's actually shared with other great apes, which is remarkable. Um, and so we, with blood donation, we'll bring people back insights about ABO and the other, other parts of our genomes that are screened for that process as well. And HLA matters a lot in platelet uh, t donation, so the particular the little little thin layer in, in the in, when blood gets spun down, there's a thin layer of platelets, which would help uh, stop the bleeding. Basically, when somebody's got a, a car accident or they need uh, chronic transfusions because they have a blood cancer and they're and, and they're bleeding a lot, um, the platelet donation works much better when it's HLA matched the same way that marrow would be. So HLA matters in the blood world too, and, and we love the idea of being able to help encourage that. Here in Boston, and in most cities today, uh, on a Saturday, a typical day, m roughly two-thirds of, of blood banks have less than three days worth of blood on hand. So that's dire, right? <laughs> so it's a constant, a constant search for new blood, and, and platelets in particular go bad after you know, a week. They have mm. to be kept at room temperature. So we really hope that we can help there as mm -hmm, well. Mm -hmm. I loved your insight that often traumas, it's trite, but you could think of them as, you know, the stuff that doesn't kill us that makes us stronger, the, um, you know, the, the grit in the oyster that, that then the pearl forms around. Sometimes these, these tough, the tough, experiences that everybody goes through in life and they're going to vary from person to person. You've got yours, you've got yours. I know some of mine. Um, those do indeed prompt the deep thinking, the soul searching, yeah. the gut-wrenching soul searching yeah. that can go on for years until it, it marries itself to an idea, yes. um, aptitude, acumen, what else you've got, and other lucky resources you have in your family and, and, and your world, to then say, aha, this is a direction that, that I could go in to help better things happen in the world. And absolutely, I, in so many people, when we talk, um, and you, you may experience this as well with folks you talk with, and their career paths, in healthcare especially, many of my colleagues likewise were drawn to be 
scientists or caregivers or funders of healthcare uh, and research because of personal experiences with loss. Because mm -hmm. they lost a sibling. Yeah. Uh, they lost a spouse. They, um, they, many kinds of loss. And, and those make one acutely feel they, they hurt and they make one think and understand hurt. It makes you want to take a burden on your back to go and research and learn and, and be a part of contributing to the edge of that field yeah. so that you can help other people going through the experience. And so, you know, a couple of thoughts here. Um, one of the thoughts is when, you, when you're explaining to people that go through Root Deep, you get, the, you get this saliva kit, you ship it back in, and then you, you, you actually provide, you gave a couple examples here. One of the examples is you give them uh, an understanding of their roots, an understanding of their ancestry. You also mentioned that they're contributing to the spark of science. Of science, yeah. Yes. So there's two ways. Actually, there's three ways that we we bring people their three views on your on your data because it can be wonky stuff, right? It's a bunch of letters in your in your DNA. What does it mean? Well, think of them almost as as um, past. You, you could think of them roughly as kinds of past, present, and future. So looking back into the past, what does DNA tell you, what does your DNA say about the past, the human past, and the past in particular in your ancestry? So you mentioned we have a, we ha our, our interface is built around a globe, and we want people to, to feel that connection to the planet we live on and to other people on it. And so where on the planet does your DNA, your HLA in particular, tie you to other leaves on that tree, on that family tree of HLA? where you have cousins you haven't met yet uh, who may be ticklishly far apart from you on the, on the planet in ways you never would have foreseen. A real surprise on, on the other side of the planet um, and people who, who don't necessarily look anything like you in the mirror, but are nonetheless your close cousins in HLA. And we should emphasize that. HLA, because it goes so deep, can take you way, it can take you way across the planet. Mm -hmm. Um, other parts of our genome tell you about other ancestors that you may share with people. So part of our interface is that is tying into that, that really heartfelt need to connect. You and I are cousins, right? We don't know exactly where in our genome there's the evidence of that most um, clearly, like most recently. Could be HLA, it could be elsewhere, but we're cousins. Um, and everybody, every pair of people is. Um, we want to bring people to closer together with that understanding of where, where their cousins are on the planet today. And in turn, to be able to contemplate, what does that mean for the past? Where did, where did people come from in the past who migrated to those different parts of the planet? So that's what the globe interface is about. That's, the, that's you know, looking back in history to the roots, right, of, of people, of, of your, you know, your own roots in Alex Haley's memorable phrase, right? Um, on the science side, that's looking ahead mm -hmm. to the future, right? And there's a, a wide open set of questions, or really a rainbow of questions, that HLA sort of shines light onto. It is the first thing we know genetically about, you know, everything we've said from lupus to, you know, par like to preeclampsia and preterm birth to, um, to narcolepsy and peanut allergy and celiac disease and, and all these other amazing 
uh, amazingly diverse frontiers of health knowledge. Nonetheless, we, we still know too little about each of those. Mm -hmm. So uh, what we want in Root is to be able to, to let people decide what kinds of research turns them on. And if a question, so you know, let's say you know, a question like, you know, why, do, why do some germs make some people sick and not other people? We want people to be able to, like a dating app, like swipe right, hey, that's a cool question, or boring, take me to the next question, what, what else you got? And decide what kinds of questions they would like to put their data toward. Mm -hmm. And they don't have to, they, they can decide to keep their data fully to themselves. They don't, they don't, you don't have to share your data in root at all. It belongs to you, you decide how and if it gets shared at all. And we, again, we want you to benefit and know how that's, that's happening. And it's in a national registry in the case that somebody does in the one in 400 case need a Marrow. That's where it starts. So that's when you join the National Marrow Donor Program or another national registry, you're, you're, you're agreeing to, to take that phone call if you're needed. Yes, if you're needed. And then you're also sparking all of this additional science. Right. But this is open frontiers of science. And why, why I say that is like... At your choice with these valves for data control. Right. Yeah. So let me give you an example. Let's take the peanut allergy example. So most of what we know genetically about, about who gets peanut allergy traces to HLA and a couple of other genes. But we know far too little yet to say whether a given toddler is going to get, you know, uh, anaphylactic shock if she eats peanuts. We can't predict yet that. We can't predict from your DNA if you're going to be allergic to peanuts. That's, that's a sobering realization that we, you know, don't expect your DNA to tell you too much yet. It's not about, it's, it's almost like Kennedy, you know, like, ask not what your DNA can do for you, ask what our DNA together could do for a future generation. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way so to put it. So to help understand, so for a future toddler, to make her genome more informative of whether or not her parents should, should feed her peanuts at, you know, before weaning, after weaning, any, at any point in her life, we need to do more research and pool together what we know and what we don't know and follow it over, you know, at the speed of life, how allergies unfold, not light, but life, and in doing so, like drive research that makes it clearer in five years or in 10 years who is going to be allergic to peanuts from birth. Mm -hmm. And maybe, maybe intervene then. There may be emerging ways to intervene and, and make sure somebody doesn't get sick if, they take, if they're given peanuts at a restaurant accidentally um, beyond just having an EpiPen, totally. but, but to sort of like uh, more systemically kind of uh, do that. And so to, to let people flex their data like muscles uh, on behalf of the science questions that excite them, that's the, that's the, the forward-looking part of what Root wants to do, right? And then there's, the, then there's the now. What does my DNA say about me now? And that's, that's the, the health report. So Root will, we, we want to deliver to people a very narrow and well-grounded health report that does not try to stretch what we can say. So one of the problems we've seen in consumer genetics is that because everybody's striving for venture capital funding and people want to you know, get, get a big lead here and there, they're always kind of pushing the envelope of what, what the data mean and kind of towing the boundary of, of bullshit. And we don't want that. We want to inoculate people against bullshit. We want people to understand what their data don't yet say. Okay. So what, what can HLA say about your health today? There's a very narrow set of drug response outlook findings. So we know, and the FDA has already validated that we know, 
that people with particular HLA types are more, much more at risk of, um, say, severe liver damage if they take a tumor drug called lapatinib, or of a full body blistering, a very like a horrific skin blistering that happens called Stevens-Johnson syndrome if they take a, a couple of nerve disease drugs, say for epilepsies or other, other nerve diseases. We know that HLA strongly predicts those risks and the FDA has validated those insights scientifically. And those are the kind of insights that we would feel comfortable bringing back to people personally about their own health outlook today. Yeah. That's a narrow sliver. So just like uh, you know, in Nabokov, um, Nabokov has this beautiful passage, I think, in, in Speak Memory, talking about um, life as this brief, a brief like, flash of light Totally. between two dark voids. Yeah. That's the narrow now, right? The moment we're living in. And there's something to say from HLA and from other parts of our genomes for people there, but we want them to know how limited that is. But we also want to cast that light into the two other directions. So looking back into the past, yeah. to what does it tell, wh where does it shine light on our common roots, roots on a particular part of the planet? Way back in, a million years back, 10 million years back, even 40 million years back. When I go to the zoo, I can know, if I know the HLA type, of, of my HLA type, and I know, the, uh, you know a particular Western lowland gorilla's H, uh, MHC type and a different one, I know which of those gorillas is my closest cousin. Not just that they're, every, every, we all know now that other great apes are our cousins, mm -hmm. but I know that one of them is actually a closer cousin to me than you are. I'm closer in HLA maybe to that gorilla than to you, and, and that gorilla is closer to me than to its own sibling or cage mate. That's remarkable depth of understanding of the past and, and evolution. Yes, and the future. And then looking to the future, again, how can we take our data, pull it together as we will with autonomy, That's right. um, safeguarding our rights and our privacy, and making sure that we have a stake in, in, in yeah. outcomes. Yeah. But how can we come together and make a baby's genome much more informative for yes. her, his health outlook, uh, 10 years hence? That's the vision that, that everybody aspires to in our field and everybody's kind of on board and there are different boats. Yeah. Yeah. But we, Root wants to be one of those boats and we want to be the one that focuses on these five genes that have really gone unsung yeah. outside of the transplant world. Um, but that means so much. And, I, and I'll add one more thing here, which is that, and I, I'm a member of 23andMe um, in Advanced History DNA, and I, I do every, you know, I wear a Fitbit. I, I, I'm an inveterate data, data geek, right? And, yeah, and maybe you are too. Um, and all that is, I love it. But 23andMe's test can't, they, they get only a very blurry look at HLA. HLA is far too diverse it's like they don't have a light sh sh powerful enough to shine 40 million years back mm -hmm. into the past. Their light shines about a million years back. But across they're multiple locations. Right, they're looking at, they're looking at sites scattered Christmas all across our genomes. Across yeah, multiple locations. that's really well put. So they're, it's like Christmas tree lights. They're, they're like every, you know, there's like a million sites strung out all, all over chromosomes. At each of those in 23andMe, uh, there are two spellings, typically. And each copy of a chromosome has one of those two spellings, and both of them are common. 
Well, common spellings are informative. They help us distinguish where, you know, what the copies look like in different continents and where, they, where yours might have come from. But the harmful stuff and the really rare functionally dis distinctive stuff and intriguing stuff in our genomes never gets common. It remains the rare variation, the rare letters that are, that are hardly ever seen but are sometimes vitally needed. Sometimes they're harmful, but sometimes they're vitally needed to find a match. And HLA is one of those spots where there's just the variation of spelling of DNA there is way too intricate and rare to, to guess from the kind of like wheel of fortune letters that the 23andMe opens. They open like every 10th letter and you have to guess what the phrase is. If the phrase is a really rare piece of text, you can't guess it. And that's HLA. HLA is this really rare little gem of a poem about you in very, very uh, distinctive words. And somewhere out there, there might be somebody with like a matching locket that has the rest of that, the same yeah. poem written in it. And that may be also true not only for the donor on the match side, but also for your swirl, for your, for your mating. Absolutely. And it, <laughs> and, and, and again, right, so you've got two copies of that poem and, and, you're, and you know, think of them as love sonnets in this case. Um, but you're looking for somebody out there who has a different, a different sonnet and you, yeah. can, you can swirl yours together and you know, it's, it's like, there's, we could go crazy here with analogies. Yeah. It's like a mashup. It's like you're making this great mashup musically between um, two really great, two really great songs that you never thought might go together. Or like, you know, the, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know Jane Austen zombies, you know? That's HLA. It's like it's a it's Jane Austen meets the zombies, and it, and it and you mash them up, and you get something utterly new, utterly textually distinctive in DNA text, and riveting, right? And and um, and so all of this is to say, twenty three me is great. Root is bringing you a different look at a, part, a much deeper look at a part of your genome that you can't get through 23. That redwood tree, yeah, right. 40 million years. So back. do both. If you've yeah. got, if you can afford Ford 99 it. bucks, yeah. if you can afford 99 bucks, pay 23 and me and get that broad look of the Christmas trees across your chromosomes. Yeah. If you would be willing to help other people yeah. with your cells someday, join Root. Get that insight back for free because we want to be different that way too. We want, you're doing something really good as a potential transplant volunteer, a blood donor, whatever it might be. You deserve that for free. You should not have to pay for that. Yeah. So do it, do route two, get both of those insights back and then decide in the world, A, how you want to have fun with your data and understand what it meant about your family past and, and your, your cousins today. And then think about what kinds of science questions would I like to help answer? Yeah, this is such a good conversation, Nathaniel. I've had such a blast talking to you about the magical genes that are HLA. This has been so I, I, I love that you let people, like, you let them geek out on what obsesses them, and hopefully that spark of what obsesses somebody else and has been driving them for a long time, hopefully it catches yeah. in a few brains that are watching. You know, when, when I watch shows like yours, um, I love that you're... you're you're stretching eclectic minds to ever new topics that might excite them and might clue them into something that not just interests them, but that they could do something about in the world. Right. It might be start their own startup, 
you know, a, based on an idea that, that a tragic loss brought them and their own yeah, yeah. experience. It might also be thinking about the science questions that excite them. Aha, you know, the, the ones that, you know, why, why do some germs make some people sick? Well, how could I help mm -hmm. answer that? Mm -hmm. Well, now you know, you know, and, yeah. and there's lots of ways that, that you're inspiring people to do good things. I thank love you, that. Thank you so much. Thank fist you. Fist bump again. Those are, those are, those the, the are yeah, yeah. To the Sistine <laughs> fist bump again. <laughs> the Sistine. Yeah, the, I love it. Um, all right, two quick questions on the way out that we like asking our guests on the show. Um, are we in a simulation? <laughs> I'm going to dissimulate on that. Um, my hunch is yes and no. My hunch is that the simulation that we're, my hunch is a, that, that experience is real, that, that the, the squishy pockets of the universe in, in, in your brain and mine that, that, that are, you know, little squishy pockets of the cosmos there, they are synthesizing information that's coming in from around them, streaming together and swirling around. And they are then conjuring up this consciousness, right? This is the great hard problem, right? The, the, the consciousness problem. Um, so the universe is self-aware. And it's self-aware through at least one, I'm going to grant you this, it's your solipsism, at least one and two simulations. Why, why I feel like they're simulations is, well, of course everything is distorted. Of course I'm only seeing colors, you know, artificially projected onto my visual field that represent part, a little sliver of the, the, um, the spectrum of photons, of frequencies that I could be seeing. So I've, I've distilled down my, my squishy bit of the cosmos is distilled down all that information to a very, very simplistic representation of it. That to me feels like a model or maybe a simulation in some ways. Plus I know that I can, uh, probably not by free will, I'm, I'm going to say, but, but, my, but my little squishy pocket does imagine and drift off and daydream and those are simulations. Mm -hmm. So my mm -hmm. answer is yes mm -hmm. to number one. And then the other question is, what is the most beautiful thing in the world? I don't know. I know the, I know the one singular breathtaking beauty epiphany that sticks in my craw when I think about it, is, I th I'm not sure if it was Michael Light or another astronaut, but the, the big blue marble image. Oh, the pale blue dot, Carl Sagan? Not, that was that, later. That, that was really cool too, but this is earlier. This is the first... Blue marble. The, the blue marble was when one of the lunar astronauts, they were, they were orbiting the moon and they did one orbit around the, you know, the dark side and came up over again and and saw earth the rising. overview effect and they saw yeah. earth rising yeah yeah and amid this you know stark sterile moonscape um, yeah. Yeah. suddenly there is this this marble baskin robbins swirl rising up in front of them yeah, yeah. Um, and the reason that came to mind when you asked the question is like you said the, the most beautiful thing. Well, it's really hard to pick one little fragment of Earth, which is where my experience and yours is confined to, and say that's the most beautiful, like the face of 
somebody, you know, the face of love or, or you know, Shakespeare's sonnet or whatever it might be or a piece of music. There's so much beauty we're seething in it, but all of it is confined to this, um, to this big blue marble. Yeah. yeah. So I, I love that image. Um, yeah. And it, I, I don't know, it just stuck with me in memory. Agreed. Yeah. It, the overview effect is one of the most profound ways for us to gain stewardship for Earth and, and uh, the, one, the oneness that we need to prosper most effectively. This was such a stellar interview. I'm very excited for when you come back to San Francisco or for when we come back to Cambridge. We gotta talk more HLA genes. We gotta talk more about all this. This was just so enlightening. There's a lot that we could go into the roots, the leaves, there's so many places. That will rock, that will rock. Yeah. And, and yeah. let's say, I, I hope when that happens that uh, more folks will have joined Root and there'll be more to talk about from and with each other um, as part of the conversation that you're just stoking. Yes. Through, through, through the show here. So, yes. Thanks. Boom. One more. Boom. Thanks. I love it. I love it. Everyone, thank you so, so much for tuning in. We greatly appreciate it. We would love to hear your thoughts in the comments below. Let us know what you're thinking about the episode. Go and share these conversations about HLA genes. Go start talking to other people in your communities, in your family, online, your coworkers. Let's get the conversations rolling. Also, check out the link in the bio to Root Deep, rootdeep.com. Go and check them out and go and go and maybe potentially enter in, enter in and see what this process is like. Go and try 23andMe too. See what the process is like. Start wearing Fitbits. Get these quantified self aura rings. Get, your, get yourself moving in the quantified self world and just feel that out. See how it is. And also follow Nathan below as well, his Twitter, also his LinkedIn profile. Go and follow him and also support the artists and entrepreneurs that you believe in around the world. Support the organizations around the world that are making great impact. Simulations links are below. Help us grow and scale. Help us continue being able to come on site like places like Cambridge to conduct these interviews. And go and build the future, everyone. Manifest your dreams into the world. Thank you so much for tuning in. We love you very much. We'll see you soon. Peace. That rocked. Amen. That's it, my brother. Really well put. Thank That's you very much. Do. Yeah. That's um, how we do. Th so you, that, that's really eloquent. I love, what do you say, manifest your? Manifest your dreams or destiny into the world. Yeah, yeah. 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 Ma just make it real. Yeah, Turn make it, it real. real, manifest it, yeah, yeah.